0: Hey there, McConaughey here. And I want to let you in on a little something. Master distiller Eddie Russell and I have created a new small batch bourbon. Wild Turkey Long Branch. Refined with Texas mesquite charcoal for a smoky sweetness.
1: It is my favorite bourbon on the planet. Wild Turkey Long Branch. Real bourbon. No apologies. Wild Turkey Long Branch. Kentucky straight bourbon
2: whiskey. 43% alcohol by volume. Capri America, New York, New York. Never compromise. Drink responsibly. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and today I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Allie. How are you, Allie? I am doing well. How are you? I'm good. Today, we have a very special guest also joining us. We have Esther from the Once Upon a Crime podcast. How are you, Esther? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Good. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So this episode is going to be a little different. Instead of telling a scripted story like we usually do, we're going to run this more like a panel. You see, Allie has a degree in criminology and Esther has a degree in correctional psychology. So when I was picking a topic for this episode with Esther, I decided to take advantage of the chance to have such an educated panel in front of me and talk about a broader topic. So tonight we're going to talk about the myths surrounding our understanding of serial killers. We will talk about the myths, we'll talk about some of the serial killers who dispel these myths, and we'll also explore why we hold on to these wrong ideas. We should first define a serial killer. It's hard to nail down a single definition. The FBI uses a broad definition that allows law enforcement to intervene earlier when they suspect there's a serial killer involved. So this definition is the unlawful killing of two or more victims by the same offender or offenders in separate events. Other definitions may require that there's three or more victims. And most definitions generally have this accepted idea that the serial killer will have a cooling off period between these separate events. So for the sake of our conversation, we're going to use the definition that includes a cooling off period when we're talking about specific serial killers.
1: And it works similar in Australia as well. It's two or more. Not that we have an endless amount of serial killers, but generally it's two or more over here as well.
2: And as a public, we have this perception that a serial killer is someone who kills because they like killing or because they're psychopaths. But if we're using the broader definition, a mob hitman would technically be a serial killer, and so would a gang member who's killed twice. But we don't generally put them on our lists when we're thinking of serial killers. And again, for the sake of this conversation, we're also not going to include them. So because these definitions are hazy and linking unsolved murders isn't an exact science, it's hard to get solid statistics on serial killers. It's believed, though, that no more than 1% of all homicides in the U.S. are the result of serial killers, and the U.S. has a reputation for having a lot of serial killers.
1: And what you said before was interesting. As far as that 1% goes, is that counting gang members, that sort of thing, or it's not?
2: My guess is it is including those. Okay. Again, they're just ballparking it, and I'm assuming they're including every murder that's been two or more people in a, in separate instance, instances okay in the u.s you're about 250 times more likely to die in a car crash than to be killed by a serial killer you are 15 times more likely to be killed by your partner and you are 30 times more likely to accidentally choke to death so that begs the first question why are we so afraid of serial killers
0: Well, now I'm afraid of all those other things you talked about right there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm scared to eat. I'll choke
2: to death. I'm glad I could help. But really, why are we so afraid of serial
1: killers when the risk of them is actually fairly low? I think it's the human element that this person is just like us. They get up, they go to work, they pay their bills, but they have this lack of conscience and guilt what's the phrase, the monsters hidden in plain sight. And they tend to be the person you least expect, which makes them all that much more terrifying. You look at a Bundy or a Gacy, and it's easy to think that if they're capable of murdering so many people, then who else? Your neighbour, your child's teacher. It's a big reality check. I
0: totally agree with that because it's it's what we we see these things on TV. We see these TV movies and shows about serial killers and we see them and they look you know the guy who's your bank teller or like you said you know your child's teacher or something and so there's no way to almost protect yourself from that because it's it would be what you would least expect
2: i agree with that i think the control factor is part of this you can be a safe driver You can chew your food carefully. You can feel like you're choosing the right partner in your life who wouldn't kill you. I mean, nobody goes out and finds someone they think would kill them. I think serial killers, because we have no relation to the victims, have usually no relation to them, that it's really just this danger that's lurking that you cannot really prevent. And I also think our interest in serial killers gives them a bigger headline than a domestic violence murder, which would be more common. And that may give us the incorrect perception that serial killers are more common.
1: It goes back to what you see on all those crime shows. They do focus on a serial killer character. They don't focus on a domestic violent situation or an accidental death. Yeah, and the whole thing
0: about media, you know, media plays a big portion of that because I was going to say it sells newspapers but nobody knows what a newspaper is anymore but you know it, it's, it's what gets the hits online right it's it's those big kind of exciting I guess is the word you would use headlines about oh my gosh there's this you know serial killer lurking around and and then when it becomes you know it comes out um, and they have all these dramatizations it, it becomes a, a big display for people to watch and to re- it really grabs your attention so it's just one of those things that it becomes larger than life. And we we mistakenly think that that would be something that we that happens every day and we have to be careful. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna walk out in the street and get targeted by a serial killer.
2: Let's go ahead and jump into the myths. And the first myth we're gonna talk about is serial killers are men. Female serial killers happen. Most of us in true crime circles are familiar with Aileen Warnos. She killed seven men and she was executed in 2002. So what I want to explore with this idea about serial killers as women, what are the motivations of female serial killers versus male serial killers?
0: So one one of the things that I remember from my grad school days was talking about this motivation, you know, for crime. And one of the big things that I remember that stood out to me was the fact that when we're talking about males committing crimes, it's more what we tend to think of as typical, like... You know, the anger and the aggression, violence, and, you know, it's all about that kind of thing, like a power kind of kill, I guess you would say. With women, what we saw in, at least in, you know, the numbers in prison, is a lot of the women, even the ones who were murderers, there was a financial aspect to their crime, whether it was, you know, killing somebody for, you know, or having somebody killed for insurance reasons, not necessarily murder, but there's a lot, a bigger number of people who, you know, embezzled money or, you know, was a thief or, you know, that kind of thing. And then the second thing that I remember was, you know, beyond that was more about revenge, <laughs> you know, revenge. Women would, you know, tend those two. On things. their husband. Yeah. on yeah, husband somebody, Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it was, And you're right. That was the other thing. It was mostly um, amongst, you know, somebody that they were intimately involved with. So, yeah, I would think the female serial killer killing strangers would be, you know, pretty rare.
1: Yeah. I think there needs to be some sort of emotional drive to a female becoming a killer or serial killer. And I think that's why it's generally someone that they do know, like a friend or a husband, partner, or even their own children.
2: So there are a few female serial killers that I read up on and... One of them that really struck me was a woman named Dalmar Overby. And what struck me about this is Denmark has very few serial killers. They actually only have two who have been convicted. And one of them, probably the most notorious one, was a woman. Dalmar Overby was a woman who took in kids who were born out of wedlock. Now, these types of baby farms, as they were called, weren't uncommon in this time, which is we're talking late Victorian era and a couple years past that. The babies would be cared for by a caretaker or adopted out, and the caretaker, of course, was compensated financially. Dalmar was convicted of killing nine children who had been left in her care, and it's believed the actual number is probably over 20 her motivation was financial. She was getting compensated for taking in these kids and then not actually having to spend the money caring for them.
1: And she killed one of her own children as well, didn't she?
2: Yes, one of the victims was her own child.
1: I've never I've never heard of her. That is
0: something right. And not only a female serial killer, but a killer of children. No wonder she was so infamous.
2: (laughs) It's interesting because I'm currently for another episode researching someone who is believed to be a serial killer in Denmark right now, and they don't have as much information released to the press as I'm used to here or even in Australia or Canada. I'm having trouble finding very much information, and I think that might be part of why there a lot of people aren't aware of this woman. And I found one for you, Allie, Caroline Grills. Yes. Yes, an Australian woman, and she poisoned multiple relatives. So again, we're looking at some people that she had a relationship with, not strangers. I couldn't find where she had an obvious financial benefit from these deaths because they tended to be step like her stepmother and various in-laws. But I mean, it's possible there was some financial motivation, but it's also possible that she, you know, it was jealousy or anger towards these people.
1: It seemed to be it was a lot of her in-laws. So maybe it was a jealousy towards her husband. So she was getting back at him by killing his family. I I couldn't find any motive or any reason. There was a lack of information with her.
2: And she also maintained her innocence. So obviously she didn't give us a glimpse into the motivation either.
1: Well... That's a good point.
2: And then, of course, we have Alien Warnos. She claims sh- all the men she killed was in self-defense, but a lot of people believe that it was they she killed as an extension of robbing them. So there was a financial gain. Others believe she killed due to PTSD from the severe abuse she suffered in her past.
1: I think the reason that Warnos became so popular or so infamous was because she was so different to what you expect from a female, not just a female, but a female killer as well. And because she was such a departure from the female stereotype and from the mainstream media's fascination with male serial killers, I think mainly because she killed like a man, so to speak, because she used a gun, and female serial killers generally use poison or suffocation to kill their victims. I guess
0: one of the things that I kind of, what you had said about her at the beginning, I your mean, it's from her motivations, I remember reading and thinking, you know, it sounded like she was very angry. <laughs> so I was just wondering yes. if there was a revenge, yeah. you know, a revenge also kind of motivation, like, you know, getting back at these people, you know, maybe somehow substituting them for people that had abused her in the past. The The consensus that, that at least one of the the men and maybe the first one that she killed was, you know, attacking her. Um, but after that, it was kind of like that was just her, you know, gateway into continuing to take out, you know, anger and plus she stole from them. She, You're right. She, she did, you know, steal from them. Yes. And uh, so there was definitely that as well.
2: And there can always be mixed motives. There can be revenge and financial gain. You know, it doesn't always have to be one or the other. And I know bringing up Alien Warnos can bring up a lot of debate, but I'm definitely someone who's on the camp of... She was mentally ill. She, was, she probably had PTSD from her childhood and teen years. And I think that contributed to her
1: crimes. I think that's telling in even later interviews with her. You could tell there was something going on. She was very angry. And I do think there was some sort of undiagnosed mental issues going on there.
2: So our second myth is that serial killers are predominantly white. Now, in the U.S., most serial killers are white, but so are most people. So if we want to look at percentages, serial killer percentages more closely match the demographics of the population. Asian Americans are among the smallest group in the United States, even though they have great, probably the greatest ethnic diversity within their group. And the largest ethnic group is Chinese. And that's where we get serial killer Charles Ng. Ng was born in Hong Kong to Chinese parents, and he was convicted of 11 murders in the U.S. with his accomplice, Leonard Lake. Now, he claims he was an observer, and Lake, who committed suicide, was behind everything. And it's believed that they killed up to 25 people together. So where do you think this myth comes from that most serial killers are white? Do you think it is due to not understanding the difference between a population percentage versus raw numbers.
1: I'm going to blame the media again. I think it's mainly run by the media and it's based on victimology because the killer and the victim are generally the same race. I think it's 90% of the time. And there is a bias in the media towards reporting about the pretty white female victim. So what are you going to hear about? You're going to hear about all the Ted Bundys of the world, because that's who kills the pretty white female victims.
0: And, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of the you know, FBI profiling and profiling in general. I mean, I'm just like fascinated by that. But I remember that when it became, you know, pretty well known and everybody was like, oh my gosh, we got to get a profile on this person that we're looking for that's killing all these people. One of the things that always seemed to happen was, okay, it's a white male it was, you know, so that was like the general kind of thing. It it came out a lot. And I remember even when they were profiling the uh, DC sniper case, they said it was a white male. And people were very surprised when it became, you know, came out and it was an African-American male, Well, actually two African-American males. And um, so I just remember always hearing that white male between the ages of 30 and 45. (laughs) So that was, I mean, even the, the profilers kind of thought, well, that's, pretty common and typical. So I think we just kind of absorbed that belief in some ways.
2: It could be that some of these beliefs we have come from the early days of profiling before it it got more fine-tuned like it is now.
1: And and it, and it could also be based on those TV shows because the serial killer generally is a white male between the ages of, you know, 30 and 45. And that's what we think in our head. We think of the CSIs and the criminal minds.
2: I think media and TV are going to be the answers to a lot of my questions tonight. But there's also a, to talk about another serial killer, the Cleveland Strangler, Anthony Sowell, is, he is a black man and 11 bodies were found in his home. Both he and Charles Ng are on death row.
0: Remember, you know, uh, what the zebra murders, the African-American male grim sleeper, Richard Ramirez was Mexican-American. Rafael Resendez, sorry, was from Mexico, was Mexican. Uh, We have several, you know, Hispanic, but sometimes from other countries. Richard Ramirez was actually Mexican-American born here in the United States.
2: For our next myth, we're going to kind of lump a couple things together. So it really depends on who you ask with this one, because serial killers are either isolated loners or they're evil geniuses or they're mentally ill. Some of those things can be true, but they're not necessarily true as a rule. Ed Kemper's IQ is upwards of 145. Alien Warnos, like I said, I believe she suffered from mental illness. David Berkowitz, son of Sam, claimed a dog was talking to him. Now, they would actually be easier to catch if they did fit into some kind of awkward social loner mold. They would almost stand out in their oddity but instead they often go undetected because they blend in well and let's take ed kemper so he was he was six feet nine inches tall so obviously he stands out he's an evil genius yet he was able to go undetected to the point that he hung out in a cop bar while committing his crimes and listening to the cops talk about the murders And he still didn't stand out.
1: And not only that, I think they talked to him about the cases as well. He was friendly with them. They were friends. So they would tell him what was happening, who their suspects were, and he would have all this inside knowledge, which would only help him commit even more crimes.
2: Ed Kemper was actually not caught until he killed his mother. And then it became obvious who was behind everything. And I mean, Ted Bundy is known. That's one of... The main things people will tell you about Ted Bundy is he disarmed his victims with his charismatic nature.
0: He gave them his real name. He said, hi, my name's (laughs) Ted. So he obviously thought, you know, nobody was going to suspect him. And, you know, the the interesting thing about Ed Kemper, I remember, and that happened right up the road for me. I live in in California and he was in Santa Cruz and he was preying on co-eds at UC Santa Cruz, you know, for the most part. He, like you said, he was six foot nine. He was this huge, huge dude, right? And he would get these girls to agree to get a ride with him, you know? So he had to either seem very um, normal and very, you know, gentle in some way, because I'm sorry, if a six foot nine dude came up to me, I'd be
1: like, ah, oh, no thanks. I think I'll walk. And seeing pictures of him, he wasn't the attractive man that Bundy was. So I, I wouldn't be getting in the car with him.
2: Right. So he must, there must've been something about him that was not threatening in spite of his size. I mean, if you look at from Canada, we have the Paul Bernardo, Carla Homoka Mm. couple who killed together. And if you look at their wedding pictures, they look like Ken and Barbie. They look like the ideal couple from the outside.
0: And that's the other thing. I mean, a lot of these guys were married for a long time. Dennis Rader- Uh, was married for a long time and his family was just in shock. People you think would say, hmm, what's going on with dad? What's going on in the basement? But nobody seemed to...
1: No one questioned. Right.
2: So our next myth is that serial killers travel from state to state to avoid detection. I know I grew up with this idea that serial killers rode the trains and they'd hop off, kill people in towns on the train line. And I hated that I lived in a town on the train line. So (laughs) I remember that from being like Probably a preteen teenager, but this is quite the opposite of what usually happens. So you know how if you crate a dog, the dog will not pee inside because they don't want to dirty their space? Serial killers are the complete opposite. They pee all over their space. (laughs) We discussed Bible John a few episodes ago. I mentioned Peter Sutcliffe, and one of the reasons I didn't think he was Bible John was because he committed all of his crimes in one area like most serial killers do. So why does a serial killer stay in one area? Because it would make sense to move around to avoid detection.
1: I think they have their comfort zone. Firstly, it's easier for them to hunt and kill their victims because they have this intimate knowledge of the area, which does give them an upper hand over the victim. And secondly, as we've already Determined earlier, they have their roots. They have their family, jobs, community groups. All of that works in their favour in avoiding detection. I think the new unemployed single guy in town would stand out way more than the married father with a respected job, and coaches the football on the weekend.
0: Plus, he kind of blends in because people are used to seeing this person probably either in just in passing or he doesn't call any attention to himself and depending on where you're from, Now, if you're from the city, you know, you can kind of blend in, but you know, if you're in, in smaller towns or, you know, more isolated places, you know, you better be somebody that people know, or they're going to be like, who's, you know, who's that and what's going on why are you here? You know? So exactly. yeah. So there's definitely that element of just being able to kind of disappear into the crowd. I think.
2: There is more freedom of movement in a space that you're familiar with and, Other people are familiar seeing you in. And it also gives you the opportunity to know your hunting ground, not you guys, because I know you're not serial killers, but to know the hunting ground and to know the disposal sites, to know where people are most of the time and know, okay, I'm not going to go over there because there are people there all the time. So, what factors do influence if a serial killer moves around?
1: Well, to me, I guess a serial killer would only travel because they already lived a transient lifestyle. I mean, maybe they were homeless or they worked in a job that required traveling, such as a truck driver or in the military. But I imagine in doing so, you would have to have some knowledge of the area as in as you said before, a dumping ground because you're leaving yourself open to be to have witnesses
0: sometimes they hit the road when it gets too close to them being caught or something happens where, you know, they may be identified or the, the police are getting closer to catching them. Um, I was just reading, um, I was doing a some research on Richard Ramirez, and that was one of the things that he would go in between Texas, where his family lived, and L.A., where he had moved to, and most of his killings were in L.A., but he actually went up once north to San Francisco because, again, you know, there was there was a lot more police kind of um looking for him and looking for the killer and that and then he would go to texas he should have stayed <laughs> because when he came back he was immediately caught um because his picture had already gotten out there but he didn't know that cuz he had gone to texas so so and i've seen that in other cases too where you know they're not dumb they they can kind of tell when but it's weird because it's like it's like a magnet they keep getting drawn back to um you know, where they, like you said, are most comfortable.
2: Ted Bundy killed in numerous states, but every place prior to the Florida murders, he went to for reasons that were not related to killing. He went to law school. He moved for an employment opportunity. He didn't move to kill in multiple places until the Florida murders happened because that happened after he escaped from jail And so it's fair to say he was, he was trying to avoid detection at that point. But I found an article because I was wondering if there were any examples of long haul truckers who were serial killers. And I found an article of 25 of them. So I was like, I'll
1: just,
2: I'll just put them all together. 25 long haul truckers who are currently in prison for serial killing.
1: A bit off topic when I was at university and I used to travel back five hours every weekend, my grandmother always told me that if I ever broke down to flag down a trucker because they are the safest people. Thanks, Nan.
2: Well, hopefully you won't need that information anymore. Our next myth, so I think we're on number six right now, are that serial killers are motivated by sex. I'm gonna just say that TV and media, these are the crimes. The more salacious crimes are the sexual, sadist crimes. and, We see those more portrayed in the media and on TV. So what are some other motives of serial killers other than
1: sex? Well, you mentioned earlier David Berkowitz. So there's ones that have the psychotic break and they believe that they're being compelled to kill by God or the devil or someone else that has influence over them like a dog. So, yeah, David Berkowitz is a good example of that.
0: And even when, you know, when we say that it's motivated by sex, it's like it's, you know, what we learn about, you know, um, you know, any kind of sexual crime, that the primary motivator is not sex. You know, it's more about either control or, you know, something feeling, you know, having a sense of power when you, you know, felt powerless. And that's just the way, for whatever reason, that we, I'm not saying we, (laughs) that they, you know, decide this is how I, I gain power.
2: I know we talked about the D.C. sniper earlier with the profiling him as a white man, and John Allen Muhammad claimed his motive was to try to start a jihad, though authorities think it may have been less ideological and more practical. Mm -hmm. They think his actual target was his ex-wife, and he was trying to make her look like a random victim of a sniper by committing all of these additional murders. We have the angels of death who some feel like they're angels of mercy. They do, not anyone else. But, and just a quick shout out to our listener, Jennifer, who recently posted an article on our Facebook group about Elizabeth Wetlaufer. Elizabeth Wetlaufer is a former nurse at an Ontario nursing home, and she's facing eight first degree murder charges for killing her elderly patients, but we don't know the motive of that yet. And I think when we think of the angels of death killers, we usually think about nurses. But Dr. Michael Swango was convicted in four deaths, and the FBI suspects the victim count is more like 60. He kept a diary, and in it, it said, when I kill someone, it's because I want to. It's the only way of reminding
0: myself I'm alive.
1: He wrote down that he enjoyed watching and smelling death. He's a definite thrill killer.
0: There's so many of these when you start kind of going into, and this is one of the things that I think is really drew me to true crime in the first place was going into their, you know, the psychological, I mean, the the upbringing and what are these people like and why do they do what they do? And what I see over and over, and I'm sure you guys have noticed this too, is that these are the people who really feel like they have no power at all in their own lives. You know, like they're, these are the ones that no matter what is going on, whether they're married and, or have jobs, or don't have jobs, or or friends, or don't have friends, or whatever. They're they're like the losers of society, you know, in a way, or at least they believe themselves to be the losers of society. And this, they have to have complete control over a human being and life and death to feel any measure of power, which you know really kind of, if you think about it, just shrinks them down to almost a non-person, I guess, in their own mind or the way they view. You know, life or society. So it's really kind of interesting if you kind of, you know, strip everything away and you see that over and over. And I think for me, that's what I've always come back to is that's the biggest motivator is needing to feel like I have power and control. And
2: I definitely think if you look at Ted Bundy's career, non serial killer career, you know, failed student, failed this, failed that, never really lived up to whatever this potential he thought he had was. I mean, you can see that same behavior you're talking about throughout his life, even not talking about his killings.
1: That's like Richard Angelo. He was a nurse in a New York hospital and he would poison a patient to near death and then give the impression that he had arrived just in time to save their lives, which obviously he didn't. And then he'd be looked at upon as a hero type figure. So he was trying to get some kind of worth out of his life. So that comes back to what you said, Esther.
2: The next myth we're going to talk about is that serial killers can't stop. When serial murders go unsolved, and then they seem to suddenly stop, like in the case of Bible John or Jack the Ripper, we ask why did they stop? And we start asking questions about Was the perpetrator arrested on other charges? Did he move? Did he have a major life change, like a marriage, that put a pause on his activities? Was he institutionalized? The questions we ask are about what external things stopped him. But in a serial killer who's not a compulsive killer, they can start and stop with some control over themselves. And, of course, the most famous example of this is Dennis Rader, who is known as BTK which stood for bind torture kill between 1974 and 1991 Raider killed 10 people mostly adult women though he did kill one adult man the husband of one of the women and her two children he had a gap of seven years at one point and then in 1991 following the murder of Dolores Davis Raider never killed again In 2004, he began writing letters to the media and the police, and through a series of him being incompetent about how computers work, it led to his 2005 arrest. It's possible he was getting ready to start killing again, but that would have been a cooling off period of 14 years. Had he never killed again, and we were looking back like we look back at Bible John or Jack the Ripper, we would start looking at people who died in that time frame, who moved, who were incarcerated. We would have missed the man, literally the man next door, who was behind all of
1: this. I, I don't think that BTK was going to kill again, because mainly because I think if he was going to kill, he just would have killed. He wouldn't have sent the letters. I think that he was just missing that attention he was getting, and that's why he sent the letters.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think he was getting bored, but I do agree he would have killed and then sent the letters if that was his intention.
1: Exactly. I think he realized it was too risky to start again. But then again, he still got caught, so during that time that he was not killing, he had gotten some position
0: in his city or his county or whatever. He was some kind of a inspector or something for the city or the county. I can't remember exactly what the title was, but everybody said he was really, he was really a jerk because he'd go around and every little thing like, "Oh, your your lawn is not cut correctly and" You know I mean, just little things like that, so he had and this is was one of the theories that he had a sense of power in his position at that time, and so that kind of fulfilled his need um but then I'm not sure if it was him, you guys might remember if it was him or was it the another one who when some- i guess they had um the the police had said, you know we think this is our suspect, and it was somebody completely different and and he got really upset about that and said, what well, <laughs> no." So that's why he started sending the letters was because, you know, he wanted to make sure that the credit wasn't being given to the wrong person, I guess, which is really stupid. Oh, that makes
1: sense. Yeah. Yeah. So he said, no, you know, I am BTK. So if the police never had that other suspect, he may never have gotten caught.
0: He'd still
2: be going through Wichita measuring people's lawns. (laughs) (laughs) The next myth is that serial killers want to get caught. I'm not entirely sure where this myth comes from, but I keep seeing it. And I think maybe it's, we have this idea of a serial killer, you know, still has some human left in them and they want to be stopped. Maybe it's just a really good plot device for criminal minds. Maybe you guys have some ideas on why we have this myth?
1: I did see an interview with Bundy and he did say that you get to a point where on your first murder you take extra care, you go that extra step to make sure you clean up after yourself. But then you get to a point where you start getting careless on the I don't know, the twentieth murder and you start making mistakes. That's what I was thinking too, is that, you know,
0: at first they're very careful and then as they are able to avoid detection they start to feel like they're they they're not going to be caught, and so they start getting sloppier, like and like you said, making mistakes, and that leads to their capture. But I don't think that they do it on purpose because they want to get caught. I mean, otherwise, why wouldn't they just come out and say, "Hey, here here I am, arrest <laughs> exactly. me"? Well, in 1998,
2: that actually happened. Wayne Adam Ford walked into a police department with a severed body part in his hand and confessed to four murders. He's Probably the exception. He wanted to get caught. He wanted to stop. But like Esther said, he did it by going into a police station and confessing. Oh wow. I didn't even know that
0: one. I <laughs> that, heard is of that one. Pretty gross. It,
2: you guys really do need to look that one up. It's an interesting story. Let's talk about something that isn't a myth and some things that we see as common in serial killers. And let's talk about dysfunctional families. Oh. most serial killers come from some type of dysfunctional family background and that begs a question nature versus nurture
1: there is usually some kind of trigger that does set off a domino effect of events i do watch a lot of crime tv and i see it on a lot of shows where siblings will grow up in the same home environment and one will be a law abiding law abiding citizen and the other one will go on to kill all these people why is that
2: so i was currently reading a book called murderous minds by dr dean haycock and i was hoping to finish it before we recorded but time got away from me it goes into the neuroscience behind psychopathy and unsuccessful psychopaths which generally means those who end up in jail for serious crimes and it's really a fascinating book and one of the things he said is that we can't boil it down to one thing or the other that we're talking about environmental factors fetal development factors possible head injuries possible seizures any type anything that affects the brain which can be nature or nurture combines to create these unsuccessful psychopaths and abuse in childhood and particularly even sexual abuse can start triggering this lack of empathy and taking it to the extreme.
0: There definitely seems to be quite a few of these um, killers that have these horrible backgrounds of abuse or, you know, neglect or, or some other kind of trauma, but it's not all of them. I mean, there there are some that we look at and we say, okay, what the heck? I mean, thinking Jeffrey Dahmer, so there's something else going on like you said it's more than one factor going on and maybe some of them are present and maybe some of them aren't.
2: Yet Jeffrey Dahmer's exactly who came to mind in this his large trauma was possibly he had been sexually abused by a neighbor. However, what keeps getting pointed out was that his parents were unhappily married and when they divorced they both left him. Well, when they divorced and both left him he was an adult I mean he was 18 or 19 (laughs) a lot of us have grown up in houses where the parents don't get along very much it and when you think of Jeffrey Dahmer he even seems extreme with the cannibalism and necrophilia even for a serial killer he's the most extreme so you would expect his childhood to be like Ed Gein's or something but it's not
1: and even the strange things that Dharma did do as a child, such as kill animals, his family would support what he was into. Like, they weren't saying, "You, know, naughty Jeffrey, I'll lock you in the basement." like he had a supportive and loving family environment.
2: So it really probably is a bunch of factors. And one thing in this book that Dr. Um, Haycock brought up was that when we look at the psychopath checklist that we talk about, and is, you know, they wrote the book, The Psychopath Test, which is a f- excellent read. I'm not knocking it at all. I very much enjoyed that book. It kind of boils it down that there's a checklist for who's a psychopath and who's not. When a true diagnosis of psychopathy, which, of course, is a controversial diagnosis in itself, however, if you're going to accept it as a diagnosis, the, they look at the whole picture. They look at the childhood. They look at any birth injury, they look at any childhood head injury, there are several factors that are taken into account, not just a checklist.
1: And then we have to talk about the McDonald triad, and that's the theory that there are certain telltale childhood behaviors that could be precursors for a future serial killer, and that's that a child would set fires Torture animals and have prolonged bedwetting. The accuracy of that triad is questionable because labeling a young child as potentially dangerous is reckless because the reality is the reasons behind the bedwetting and the setting fires could be due to other underlying problems.
2: Yes, and something that a lot of people don't understand and a lot of parents get frustrated with their kids is that. Bed wetting is actually developmentally normal until puberty. So, yes. an eight year old who wets the bed, there is not necessarily something wrong. And after puberty is when it, it becomes questionable, or if they were not bed wetting and then they suddenly start, you have to kind of wonder what's going on. But for the most part, unless someone's wetting the bed at 15, it's not actually abnormal.
1: And just a personal story, I grew up on a farm. I was known to set fires and maybe burn frogs. So I have two of the three in the triad, and I haven't killed anyone yet. I am fairly normal, it's questionable, but (laughs) I haven't killed anyone. So it is questionable taking these three factors and saying, you're going to be a serial killer.
0: Well, it's been nice talking to you guys, but I got (laughs) to (laughs) go.
1: Way too much information
0: about Allie. No, I'm just kidding.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think that the goal with being able to diagnose psychopathy early is that we can then somehow treat it so that the person can go on to be a successful psychopath, even if they still have trouble with empathy and such, that they're not out there killing people. But when we do look at these things that can be developmentally normal they can be childhood experimentation we can't point at them as they happen and say you're definitely going to be a serial killer i do think the mcdonald triad can cause parents more worry than it should
1: and then if you're labeling a child at that age you're putting them in that category and they're more likely to act out because they they think that's who they are
2: Thank you everyone for listening to this episode and a special thanks to Esther for bringing her expertise to this episode. I recommend checking out her podcast once upon a crime. How would you explain your podcast to someone, Esther?
0: It's basically a true crime stories. And I say this true crime cases told one chapter at a time. I put the stories together in a series. So, I'll have, you know, a series and there'll be separate cases for each one of those. And I call those chapters. So, so for example, I had a series on kids who kill. Each episode had a different case. And right now I'm working on a, a series called True True Crime Game Changers. And those, each one of these crimes made us rethink the way that we responded to certain types of crime and how we um, thought about them.
2: I like that you put yours together in series. And I feel like they're, you know, kind of scary bedtime stories the way you tell them. So, yes. you know, I'm I'm a huge fan of Once Upon a Crime and I definitely recommend everyone check that out in your favorite podcast app. So thank you very much, Esther, for being here. Thank you. So you can find us on Facebook at Insight Pod. Ali is on Instagram at InsightPod. I'm on Twitter at Insight Full Pod. You can find both of us on email at insightfulpod at gmail.com. And our website where we post articles and book reviews and documentary reviews is insightpod.com. And a huge thank you as always to our Patreon supporters. There is about another week to donate on Patreon to make it onto our Christmas card list. If you want to do a one-time donation, you can find a PayPal button on our website. And as long as your address is on there, you can still make our Christmas card list but just make sure we have your address. We'll see you guys in one week with our next episode. Bye.
1: Bye.